For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to begin reading with verse 12 and read through verse 9 of chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by His own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, And come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission, and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. We read that far in God's holy word, and we consider this morning the text of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 41. What doth the seventh commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is accursed of God, and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? Since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, He forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, when 
The Sixth Commandment speaks of adultery. It doesn't intend to limit the application of that simply to sexual infidelity on the part of a married individual. The Heidelberg Catechism is correct when it says that the commandment teaches that all uncleanness is a curse of God in holy wedlock or in single life. It forbids all forms of fornication, of which adultery is only one form. Both are equally abominable to the Lord, as 1 Corinthians 6 points out. In verse 9 of the chapter, which we did not read, we read, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor adulterers. There it includes both as being prohibited by the commandment of God, and those who live in such sins shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse uh, 12 of the uh, passage, it says that both are forbidden because both are sins against one's own body. The section that we read says that. Similarly, the text that we read also has in mind much more than simply fornication of a man with a harlot, even though that's the thing that's mentioned in the passage. It mentions that because that was one of the most common forms of fornication there in the city of Corinth, married men fornicating with prostitutes. But there the apostle really forbids any sexual relationships outside of marriage. And that's evident from verse 2 of chapter 7 when he says to avoid, let every man have his wife and every woman her own husband. It's worth pointing out too that the inclusion of this in 1 Corinthians 6 where it is is an indication that this belongs to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, belongs to the enduring law and gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of 1 Corinthians is somewhat unusual in that it does not have a doctrinal and a practical section, but they are intermingled. Today, many mock and they scorn at so-called practical preaching. But that is part of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as this very passage points out. The gospel addresses this subject of fornication the way it does because it belongs to the glorious light of the gospel, shedding its light in a world that is dark with fornication, dark with the filth and impurity of sexual impurity. And the gospel shines in that world. It did so at the time of the apostle in the corrupt city of Corinth, and it does so in our own day. It says there is a better way. The way of true pleasure, the way of true happiness, is the way of purity and chastity with regard to one's body. It's part of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that speaks courageously and boldly in this world, that is not afraid of the mockery 
and the scorn and the ridicule of that Word of God, that fornication and adultery is forbidden in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not afraid to speak. And this passage shows that that did not change. There is no essential change to the rule and the law of God in the New Testament after Christ has come. In fact, this commandment becomes grounded in the very death and atonement of Jesus Christ. An appeal to that is even made here by the Apostle with regard to this law. What this passage brings out strikingly is that exactly because of who we are in relationship to Jesus Christ, fornication is not simply fornication when it's committed by one who belongs to Jesus Christ. That exactly because of who and what we are, what our soul and our body are, that when we sin against the seventh commandment, we are fornicating with the Lord's body. We are not only sinning against His body, we are fornicating with the Lord's body. So we consider this morning the sin, the great evil, and then finally the antidote. On behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, as He goes on to make clear, the Apostle here condemns fornication as a real danger, a real threat and a very real sin in the church of Jesus Christ among the people of God. Unlike other issues the Apostle addresses in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're not really told any specific examples of this sin in the church other than that which we read of in chapter 5. In chapter 5, the Apostle addresses one particular aspect of this sin, which is that there was an individual who was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. An incestuous relationship. And there was a member in good standing in the church, and the Apostle addresses that. And undoubtedly, with that in mind, he returns to this subject, and he covers it in greater detail The Apostle addresses this particularly because he is aware of the people, the race, and the culture in which the church lives, where it is located. That certainly was true of the church of Corinth in his day. A very corrupt and wicked culture that was characterized by fornication. In Greco-Roman society, Fornication was considered part of everyday life. There was no negative connotations to it. There was no notion of it as sinful. It was considered as common and as ordinary as eating and drinking. The Greek-Roman culture simply considered eating, drinking, and fornicating to be all on the same plane, all part of ordinary life. That explains why when the apostolic council meets in Acts chapter 15, they add the warning that they do with regard to converts. When they issued that decree, they issued a decree that the New Testament converts, the Greeks, 
We're not bound anymore by the law of Moses, the ceremonial laws of Old Testament Israel. They need not be circumcised, but they added two addendums to that decree. First of all, was that the Greeks were to abstain from eating blood or bloody meat. And that because it was offensive to the Jews. That was considered unclean to them. Out of deference to the Jews, the church forbid the Greeks who were converted to continue that practice. The second thing they added was to abstain from fornication. That should not be read this way that the Ten Commandments were all abrogated except for the seventh, but rather that was added exactly because that particular sin was not seen as sin at all among the Greeks and therefore a particular threat to converts in the Christian church. And this was even more so in Corinth. Corinth was especially known for promoting the idea that the body was simply for pleasure. And that's why he quotes what he does. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. The idea of the Greeks was that even as meats were made for the belly, so the belly only really had one purpose, and that's to fill it with food. So also the body had one purpose in life, which was to fornicate. This was closely related, of course, to the Greeks' attitude about the relationship of the soul and the body. The Greeks had this notion about soul and body, namely that the soul was immortal. It was automatically immortal, and the body was temporary and fleeting so the idea was, whatever you did in the body had no consequence whatsoever. In fact, one should use the body however one felt like it should be used, because soon it would die and be cast away where one would live immortally in one's soul. So that it was more important, far more important, what one did with the mind and with their desires and their soul than what they did with one's own body. And against that, the Apostle speaks, rejecting both the notion of culture and rejecting their philosophical ideas about the body and the soul. And I bring that up because those same dangers face you and I today in our culture. Our culture is essentially the same Greco-Roman culture. The body is made for eating and drinking and fornicating. Fornicating has no negative connotations to it whatsoever. In fact, it is glorified. It is promoted. It is cheered. It is used as entertainment. There is no consequences to such things in our culture. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die is the second great threat. Since the body is only temporary, and life is only fleeting. Get whatever you can out of it. 
What's most important in this short life is that you suck up all the pleasure that you can. You were given a body, and that body was for pleasure. So get the most of it, including whatever fornication you can. Over against that, the gospel speaks. The apostle also speaks about this subject because there was also an additional threat in the church of Corinth, and that was a theological error that could also be used as an excuse for fornicating. And that theological error was the misapplication of the truth of Christian liberty. In other words, that fornication would be excused and not dealt with as it ought to be dealt with because of the truth of Christian liberty. The idea is that we're saved, and we're saved by grace. Being therefore saved by grace, fornication no longer is the great threat that it really was, and one should not be so rigid in the application of the law of God with regard to fornication. That this was actually the main concern of the apostle is evident when this entire section begins with his quotation of Christian liberty. In verse 12, he's talking there about Christian liberty. There was, you see, a common error in the church, even as there is one today. And that is, if you say that all uncleanness is a curse of God, you're saying too much. All uncleanness is a curse, like watching it on TV? Yes, that's a curse of God. You mean as in like even reading about it is a curse of God? Yes. Yes, it is. And then people will say, well, that, that's too much. If the elders and the preacher condemn fornication on the part of young people before marriage, because nowadays it's pretty easy to get away with it because there's birth control pills and even abortion that's available to keep it quiet and private. And you condemn that, people will say you're going really too far. That's against the gospel of grace. If you condemn adults who divorce and then remarry another man's wife, they will say, you may do that. The Lord is gracious. And against that, the apostle says, yes, the Lord is indeed gracious. But His grace is that He gives power not to fornicate. Grace is not, now that you're saved by grace, you may fornicate without consequence. So Paul addresses that. And he addresses it first by affirming the truth of Christian liberty. All things are lawful unto me. That's the truth of Christian liberty. All things are lawful unto me. He repeats it twice. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful unto me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That shows that Christian liberty is a very important part of the gospel. The truth of Christian liberty is that there are things that God neither commands nor forbids and therefore are lawful 
for the child of God. They're neither commanded nor forbidden. So that when individuals, perhaps with a great deal of piety, perhaps with a great deal of concern about certain things, say that you shouldn't do this, and you mayn't do that, and you ought to do this and not that, they are denying the gospel of grace. That's pretty serious. And the church needs to be aware of that. So much so that the apostle makes it very strong. All things are lawful for me. Don't you come along and start making all kinds of rules and regulations for what I ought and ought not to do. Do you not know that all things are lawful for me? That's Christian liberty. And the church needs to be aware of how easy it is to deny the gospel of grace by denying that liberty. On the other hand, there are two caveats, two qualifications to that that the church also often forgets. Two exceptions. The first is that all things, however, are not expedient. That word expedient means profitable, beneficial. In other words, there's things that are very lawful that I may engage in, but they're not profitable. In other words, they have no benefit. They add nothing to the kingdom of heaven. For example, there's a lot of entertainment that falls in that category. A lot of things that we can do with our leisure. Oh, certainly, they're lawful. The, the Bible does not come along and say, Thou shalt not have a boat. But is it expedient? Is it profitable? Is it beneficial? And the apostle says, no. A lot of things fall in that category. They're not. That's an exception to Christian liberty. Christian liberty is not, now, we can buy whatever we want, do whatever we want. We can take our body and our time and spend it however we see fit. And the implication is, if that's the way you think, you will certainly quickly be falling into fornication too. Because that's the attitude whereby one was fornicating even in the church. So he brings that up. The second one is we cannot be brought under the power of any. And here too, sin is awful blinding. There's many people that begin to engage in something because they say, well, it's lawful for me. It's lawful for me to do this, to buy that to eat this, to drink that. But then they quickly come under the power of them. And if you come to them and you say, brother or sister, you're under the power. You're under the power of alcohol. You're under the power of this entertainment. You can't even turn off your TV set. They get mad. They get angry. They say, this is my liberty. No, it's not. It's no longer a liberty. It is now a death sentence. It is now sin. It is now your idol. You've been brought under the power of it. So you see, those are two very, very, very important qualifications to Christian liberty. It's not a license to do whatever we want. Because then one is no different than the world. And it's not a license to come under the power of them. Again, because then we're no different than the world. But the Apostle is saying here, fornication doesn't belong to that. When he says, all things are lawful for me, 
adultery and fornication is excluded from that. He's not saying now, absolutely, all things are lawful for me, so I can have another God. I don't have to come to church on Sunday. I may steal when I feel like it, and certainly I can fornicate. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about all things that God neither commands nor forbids. That's why he treats this subject immediately after that. Because he saw it as a threat to the church. Why? We're saved. We're saved by grace. Therefore, not all uncleanness is forbidden. Perhaps, perhaps maybe the grossest forms of it, like that man committing incest. We can see he has a point. That's kind of gross. We should stop that. But we can still continue to see the harlot. No, says the apostle. That's not Christian liberty. So much is it not Christian liberty that he says to fornicate is to sin against one's own body. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Here, he shows what's unique about fornication. No, fornication is not the worst sin that can be committed. But it is unique. And what's unique about it is every other sin occurs outside the body. It's a sin outside of your body. That's what he means by without. But when you fornicate, you fornicate with your body, and thus you sin against your own body. Like a bully and a tyrant father in his home, he sins against his own body. He sins in a unique way. So also when we commit fornication, we are sinning against ourselves, against our own body. Belonging also to the sinfulness of that sin is even that word fornication itself. Fornication is a very biblical and strong word for what today is often euphemized. A man is just having an affair, a fling. It's just entertainment. It's just for a moment. No, it's fornication. And here I remind the congregation that the word in Scripture for fornicate and fornication is the word pornia. It's the word from which we get pornography. Pornography is fornication. Fornication is pornography. Those words are tied at the hip. An affair is fornication. To watch pornography is fornication. To divorce your spouse and marry another is fornication. There's no difference in these sins. And we ought to call them what they are. Sin. Now exactly because fornication is sin, the apostle wants to get across to the people of God how evil is that sin. We touched on that briefly, but the apostle wants to press the issue home. And he does that, of course, because of the nature of that sin. The apostle is well aware that this is one of those sins that exposes us as the depraved creatures that we are. Indeed, there is something to the truth that fornication is as easy as eating and drinking. 
Much like our bodies crave food and drink, our bodies crave sexual pleasure. There's a desire there that is difficult to deal with. So much so that the Apostle says that for one to remain single requires a gift. A special gift of God. So much is that true that even in marriage there is a special gift of God that's required to remain faithful in that marriage. So he wants to stress the particular nature, the evilness of this sin. I indicated one part of that is when he brings out the fact that one sins against his own body. As strange as it should be, if we would see someone taking a knife and stabbing themselves or shooting themselves or otherwise harming their body, we ought to see the strangeness and the weirdness of someone committing fornication in the church. You sin against your own body, but it's more than that. It's interesting that the Apostle brings these things up because often they are not what the world brings up because it has a certain concern about fornication and so does even the church. It is amazing that even the world and the church recognizes there's some sort of evil in this. The evil is that there's a result, a consequence. There are unwanted pregnancies, they call them. There are effects on society. There is damage to the home. There's even damage to individuals. There are sexually transmitted diseases that are awful in their effect, even kill people, and the world is worried about them. It wants to deal with these things. That's ultimately why there is a battle in the United States over abortion. It's over the freedom to commit fornication. That's what it's all about. It's not really about a child's life. It's about a mother's life or a father's life. It's about them being able to do whatever they want without consequence. But the church has the same problem. There are churches that want to look the other way, that do sanction divorce and remarriage, but they have concerns. This can't get out of control. We may let this just happen wholesale. Otherwise, we're just switching wives and husbands all the time. There will be effects, they have noticed, on the family and in the home. This is destructive to children. And so they talk about these things. They write books about these things. And perhaps if we read them and we hear them, we think that that's the real evil of fornication. So that the minister ought to address those things when he gets to this commandment. People of God, don't fornicate because you're going to get venereal diseases. It's going to destroy your home. Don't divorce remarriage because it could destroy your kids. Don't sit in front of the television set and watch all those movies where they're fornicating for entertainment because pretty soon you're going to be tempted in that too. That's not what the apostle brings. What he brings to show both the evil and to motivate us, to move us to say, That's wrong. That's sinful. He brings out the fact that our body and our soul belong to the Lord. It's not just that one sins against one's own body. 
One sins against the Lord's body. And one is actually taking the Lord's body to fornicate. Notice, that's his argument. And that's his argument on the basis of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is an astounding argument. He is preaching this law of God. And he's applying it to a church that he believes is bought by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the application. It isn't, well, your sins are forgiven, so don't preach about these things. To preach about these practical things, that's not gospel preaching. That's law preaching. That's destructive. That's not the attitude. Is No. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, don't you understand that your body has been redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ? And they're united to Him. They belong to Him. We are one spirit with Christ, He says in verse 17. And so much so that the body He makes His own temple. Jesus Christ comes and lives through His Spirit in our body. It is His temple. And since the Holy Spirit makes the body His own, it is a sacred body, a holy body, He says in verse 19. A body that will be raised up at the last day. Positively, he means that Christ, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Why the commandment? Why the commandment to live pure and holy in one's life? Because that body isn't yours. You see how that even tempers the whole notion of Christian liberty? Even in the church, we take the idea of Christian liberty and say, I like that, all things are lawful for me. And the next thing you know, someone's violating all the rules of Christian liberty exactly because they forgot the great principle of Christian liberty, which is you have liberty because your body's not your own. Your soul's not your own. And so that automatically means you can't just do whatever you want with it. We have to use both the body and the soul rightly. Negatively, he says, that means it's not for fornication. Positively, he says, the body and soul is to glorify God. That's what it's for. See how this applies much beyond even this? It gets at the heart of the issue. Whose body is your body and whose soul is your soul? Is it yours? Far too many people in church say, yes, it is. So if my body isn't happy, I'm unhappy. And if my soul is displeased, then I'm displeased. If my body isn't experiencing all the pleasure that I think it ought to have, whether it's sexual pleasure, or whether it's monetary pleasure, or whether it's vacation pleasure, whatever, then I'm not happy. If it's denied me, then I'm not happy. The apostle flips it all on its head and says, whose body is yours? Isn't that what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1? Isn't everything founded upon that principle? What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your pleasure? What is your happiness? What is your joy in life and death? What is it? Is it that you got a husband and a wife and happy kids and a family? Is it you got so much money, boat in the backyard, big house, good job? Better not be. Because all that stuff is fleeting. And then soon you're unhappy. Not only that, but if you're truly a Christian, you're going to understand that none of that stuff makes you happy. It doesn't make you happy. It doesn't give you comfort. What is it? That I am not my own. 
I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle comes along and says, now that's the great evil of fornication. The great evil of fornication is that the man that sits at his computer screen and watches porn is forcing the Spirit to watch that. And it's going to grieve him. It'll destroy him. It'll eventually destroy him. You take the very body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle says, and you unite it to a harlot. Did you notice that? He's very bold here. No, he's not saying you have a marriage now. If you commit fornication with a harlot, you have a marriage. You have a one flesh union. No, he's very careful. He says you have a one body union. Because the one body union is an expression of the one flesh union of marriage. We all know that. That the sexual act is one great manifestation of a greater union, the one flesh union. That's a union of body and soul, the slush, fleshly soul of the fleshly body. And he says that's not what happens when you have prostitution and harlotry. The man's not seeing a harlot. What he's doing is joining the body of Jesus Christ to a filthy, disgusting harlot. That's, going, that's what's going on when you read what you read that's fornication. And you watch what you watch. And you hear what you hear. You're not hearing it. The Lord is hearing it. His body is hearing it. It's going through His ears. And it's why there is so much depression and grief. Many people need to understand that oftentimes the reason they're grieved, the reason they're not satisfied, they're not content, why their life seems empty, is because they've been spending their life grieving the Spirit. Indeed, the issue is they are children of God. The Spirit is in them. And repeatedly, time after time again, they grieve the Spirit by their actions and especially fornicating actions. And let me tell you, it's a plague in the church. It's a plague among our young people. It's a plague in our marriages. And it's going to destroy them. This is it. This is the explanation. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this is the great evil. This is the monstrosity of that sin. And you live in a culture that says it's really no different than eating and drinking. And you live even in a church world that says that. A church world that promotes fornication and allows it and excuses it. You want to get divorced and remarried? There's plenty of churches you can join that will say that's no problem here. We live in a gospel of grace. God will forgive you. But the real gospel of grace is no. God will preserve you pure and holy. And the power of that is the very reality that your body and soul is the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great question then. That's the great question the Apostle asks. What? What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? What? Shall you take now the body and the soul that Jesus Christ bought with His own blood and join it to a harlot? Sit and watch the filth that you watch and then laugh? This is funny. 
Oh, yes, look at this guy shacked up with that girl. That's real funny because there's some jokes there. So what's the antidote? Well, exactly that. That's the whole point of the apostle. You see, the power of grace, beloved, is indeed the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. And how does that power work? How does it work? Is it a power that works this way? Well, we're not going to talk about that. That's practical preaching. That's stuff, really, that's not all that important. Grace is that, well, we just look the other way. We're not so rigorous. Or is the power found in exactly that? What? Don't you know? Don't you who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins in Him realize what happened there at the cross? He bought you. He owns your body. He owns your soul. And He actually lives there. And for the child of God, to do that is intolerable. It will always be intolerable. That grace takes the form of calling us especially to flee fornication. That's how it comes. Flee fornication. That's another unique aspect of dealing with this particular sin. There's all kinds of other sins that when the Bible gets to them, it talks us and it says stand up against them, fight against them, resist them. It doesn't do that with fornication. When it comes to fornication, it says run. Run like a scared rabbit. Run as fast as you can. Why? Because that sin is that powerful. That sin is so engraved in our flesh that one can't even be near it. And if one finds himself in the throes and bondage of fornication, this is the reason why. Because they didn't flee. They didn't run. They said, uh, it's not going to hurt to just take a peek, to just watch, to just try it, to just look, to just learn. The apostle says, run. Run as fast as you can. And don't forget that that's the power of God's grace. The power of God's grace is that you can run. No one who belongs to Jesus Christ, no one who has been bought by Him, no one who believes in Him for the forgiveness of sins can say, well, I can't do that. That's not possible for me. No, that's impossible for those who have not been bought by Jesus Christ. But for the child of God, it is. So how do you flee that? How do you flee fornication? Three ways, real quick. Number one, you flee it in your heart. When we find ourselves ensnared in fornication and under its bondage, it's always because it started in the heart and wasn't squashed there. An individual begins with an infatuation over someone and they're dreaming and they're thinking about someone until it consumes them. It's because an individual said to themselves, well, as long as I don't engage in the act, perhaps if I only watch, watch a video, that's not fornication. No, 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 no. You don't understand the sin. Flee it means, first of all, flee it in your heart, in your mind. Flee it as soon as it pops up into your head. Number two, flee it by running from everything that's connected to it. Those who find themselves in the bondage of fornication, usually it's because 
They imagined in their heart that if they just fled from the fornication itself, they would be safe. No. You have to flee everything that's connected to it. You have to flee not only the harlot that sells it, but the harlot's music that promotes it. The entertainment that glorifies it. The dancing that involves it. The talk that makes fun of it. The drunkenness that removes the inhibitions and allows for it. It's all related. It is amazing how often sin in another area eventually always leads to fornication. If you think that you can sit in your home with your wife or your husband or your kids and turn on the television and watch your Netflix or your YouTube channel and watch all the filth that's on there and somehow justify it as entertainment, it will have its consequences. If you think you can drink in a bar and not somehow fall into fornication, you got another guest coming that you can dance with the world's dance without committing fornication, guess again. Run from it. Flee from it. And lastly, you have to flee to something. You just can't flee from it. You have to flee to something. If you're just running from it, you'll run right back into it again. Where do you flee? Well, you have to flee to the Lord. Remember what He said. What's the body for? What is it really for? Well, if it's not for fornication, what is it for? It's for the Lord. You see, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to fornicate with a harlot when you're using your body for the Lord. That's impossible, you see. It's impossible for you to be fornicating here if you're using your body, your eyes and your ears, to glorify God. I also mean to flee to the Lord for the forgiveness of sins, to ask the Lord, Lord, please help the thoughts in my head. Help free me from this bondage. Flee to the Lord for thankfulness that He has forgiven our fornication because He shed His own blood. That, beloved, is the antidote to fornication. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, forgive us fornicators, us adulterers, us whoremongers, which we are by nature, who are by nature no different than the world, meats for the belly and the belly for meats and the body for fornication and fornication for the body, that everything is about my pleasure in my body and what I want, and even imagines that somehow grace just makes it all go away. O Lord, our God, we pray that Thou wilt strengthen us by Thy grace so that we are enabled to flee fornication, to put it away, to regard it as the great evil that it is, sin against Thy body, to fornicate with Thy body. Give us strength to give our body and our soul, our mind and our heart, to Thee, the God who has bought them. Again, forgive our sins and deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen.